the pastor of preaching here at Four Oaks, and we are very grateful that you chose to be with us this morning. We realize that Sunday mornings are, are, uh, are kind of like the key moments in the weekend, and we're genuinely blessed and thankful that you chose to share Sunday morning with us. So let me just give you a little bit of idea of kind of where we are as a church. Uh, we are continuing today in a series that is titled Truth Matters. And uh, the backstory on that is that the elders of Four Oaks Church is recommending a change in our statement of faith, of moving from the evangelical free statement of faith to the gospel coalition statement of faith. And uh, such a decision like that is not simply about changing what we post on the website. It's really a decision about what we stand upon as a local church. And so we're taking this summer to walk through each article in that statement of faith. And we've walked through eight already, which delivers us this morning to chapter or to article number nine. And we're doing this because we want you to understand the statement of faith. We want you to own the statement of faith. Ultimately, we want you to vote in support of the statement of faith. And by the way, as I'm saying that, I just want to thank you. Thank you for the attention that you are giving to this process. We're so grateful for the questions that we've received, intelligent questions that we're getting that reflect genuine thought and reflection on the content of the statement of faith. Thank you for your participation in the pastor's meetings that we've had where we've tried to teach a little bit deeper on some of the articles. You're just doing a great job of engaging this in a very helpful and very edifying manner. So, so thank you. So this morning, you can open up your Bibles to John chapter 16. And as I mentioned, this is Article 9. And Article 9 is titled, The Power of the Holy Spirit. And so what I want to do is I want to read Article 9, and then I want to turn, we are turning to John 16. I want to read beginning in verse 4 through verse 15. So buckle your seatbelt because we've got to do a lot of reading this morning. And then we'll pray together. So this is Article 9, titled, The Power of the Holy Spirit. We believe that this salvation, attested in all Scripture and secured by Jesus Christ, is applied to His people by the Holy Spirit. Sent by the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ And, as the other paraclete, is present with and in believers. He convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and by his powerful and mysterious work, regenerates spiritually dead sinners, awakening them to repentance and faith. And in him they are baptized into union with the Lord Jesus, such that they are justified before God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. By the Spirit's agency, believers are renewed, sanctified, and adopted into God's family. They participate in the divine nature and receive His sovereignly distributed gifts. The Holy Spirit is Himself the down payment of the promised inheritance. And in this age, indwells, guides, 
instructs, equips, revives, and empowers believers for Christ-like living and service. Now, this article is important, but it's not nearly as important as understanding where this article is taught in the Word of God, which is why we're turning to John chapter 16, and we're going to begin reading in verse, latter part of verse 4 through verse 15, and here's how it begins. This is Jesus speaking. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go... I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes... He will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine, and declare it to you. So the title of this morning's message is is Truth Matters, God Empowering. God Empowering. And let's just stop and let's pray and and let's ask God for for his help this morning. Lord, your word says that your spirit takes what is yours and declares it to us. And we believe that's what this morning is about. It's about being declared to from the Spirit of God through your holy word. And so we pray that you would give us ears to hear. Lord, give me a mouth to speak. Help me serve these good people through your word this morning. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to draw your attention to an epic phrase in the Bible passage that we just read. In fact, one that is so short, it's relatively easy just to pass over. And it's the one in verse 7 where Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. Now, let's just stop for a second and let's ponder what's being said there. And let's ponder also how that must have landed upon the men who had followed him for the past three years. God in heaven had come to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. And he had, over the past three years, taken this rugged group of uneducated, blue-collar types and united them into a team, united them into the disciples of Jesus Christ. 
And they had had quite a set of experiences together. They had seen him heal the sick and walk on water and create food out of nothing and confound the brightest lawyers in the land and the Pharisees as well. And if that wasn't enough, they had also seen him raise the dead. And this is a group that he had shared his life with. They had laughed at his humor, basked in his love, marveled at his power, and expected and anticipated that his reign would begin right there on earth. In fact, in the entire history of the world, who had more advantages than those who had walked with God incarnate? Who was better off than those who had walked with Jesus Christ? And now, at the Last Supper, Jesus stands before them and he says, it's to your advantage that I leave. It's to your advantage that I go away. How could that ever be possible? I mean, I read a story this past week of a wealthy, eccentric guy from Portugal who left his inheritance to 70 different people that were chosen randomly from a telephone book. They didn't know him. They didn't love him. I get how it was to their advantage that he go away. They didn't know him. They didn't love him. I I get that, but not Jesus. Not Jesus. He was their hope. He was their protector. He was their coach. He was their teacher. He was their comforter. He was their master. How could any arrangement that leaves them without him be superior? How is that possible? Well, Jesus answers that question in the remainder of the passage. And as he does, a pneumatology appears. Now, don't be intimidated by that word. If you've been around for a while, at least through the Acts series, you'll remember that's a word we covered there. Pneuma is simply the Greek word for spirit. It appears 250 times in the New Testament. So it's pneumatology, study of the Holy Spirit, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. So as Jesus speaks in John chapter 16, a pneumatology appears. Now, I want to prepare you for what is probably going to be the most uncomfortable article that we study in the Statement of Faith. Because as one man put it, modern Christians are content to be Trinitarian in belief, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Modern Christians are content to be Trinitarian in belief, but binitarian in practice. So we believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but when we move to practice, it's pretty much just about the Father and the Son. And it's being binitarian, just being about the Father and Son, that makes Christianity, Christianity manageable, makes Christianity respectable. Because we don't have to deal with the wind of the Spirit, which just goes wherever it will, and who can predict what's going to happen? We don't have to deal with the gifts of the Spirit that have all their messiness and their imperfections when the church goes to apply them. And let's be honest, because for some, the Spirit is like that that rather unusual gift we get at Christmas that we receive with gratitude, but then as soon as they leave, we stow it in the attic and only pull it out when that, when that part of the family comes back around at any given time of year. He's, he's kind of like God in the garage. The spirit is like God in the garage. The garage is where you store things like the jumper cables, like tools, you know, those things that you only need occasionally. God in the garage, the Holy Spirit. But it's funny, when we read these words from the Last Supper, Jesus doesn't seem to have the baggage that we have 
when it comes to the Holy Spirit. And in his mind, he says, it's better that I leave. It's better that I leave because if I leave, he comes. If I leave, the Spirit comes. And so Jesus summarizes that by saying, it's to your advantage. So what I want to do this morning is I want to actually try to understand what advantage does the Spirit of God bring us? And I've really got two simple points that I want to cover with you. One is, the first one is that the Spirit brings God's presence. And the second is that the Spirit brings God's power. Those are two advantages that I believe emerge from the text. Let's look at the first one. The Spirit brings God's presence. Now, again, Jesus said, it is to your advantage if I go away. Why is it to their advantage? Well, he begins to answer the question then in the passage that follows. He says, quote, if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. So Jesus says, I know I'm here in person, and I know I'm here and I'm a comfort to you. But there's another comforter, there's another person who's going to come to you. You don't go to him. He's coming to you. And not only is he coming to you, but he will be in you. He will be in you. Now, what does that mean? Well, the point I'm talking about is that the Spirit brings God's presence. But what that means specifically is that God's presence means the Trinity within us. So this is the first sub-point. God's presence means the Trinity within us. Now, we read this, and you could almost think that, that, that a plain reading seems to imply that the sequence of events here is that Jesus dies, he rises on the third day, he ascends to heaven, and then he kind of tags the Spirit, and it's the Spirit's turn to jump in the ring for his turn with the human beings because Jesus has gone out like a kind of divine chain of command where the Father sends the Son, the Son sends the Spirit, and because the Spirit's the low man on the totem pole, he has to go hang out with all the human beings down in a fallen world. But you don't need to be a brain surgeon to know that that's probably not what Jesus had in mind when he said, it is better, it is superior, it is to your advantage. I want you to think about what I'm about to say. In Jesus, God was embodied. In Jesus, God was localized. He was with the disciples there in person. He was called in coming to earth, Emmanuel, God with us, God among us. But see, what Jesus is announcing is there's a helper that's going to come, and the helper is going to be better because the helper is God in us, not God with us, not God among us, but God in us. Fascinating. Did you notice that section in the statement of faith where it says, quote, the Holy Spirit glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ, and as the other paraclete is present with and in believers. With and in believers. And that's drawn right out of Scripture. And it's, it's implied in John chapter 16, but let's just jump back a couple of chapters to John 14, where you can see it more explicitly. John 14, verse 16, Jesus said, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, 
Jesus was the first. Another helper to be with you forever. And then five verses later in John 14, verse 23, Jesus says again, if anyone loves me, now listen to this, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. See, the idea here is not that it's the Spirit's turn to come and punch the clock. In other words, we've had our quality time with Jesus. Jesus is stepping out. He's got other things to do. And so now the Spirit comes in, and we get our quality time with the Spirit. No, that's not it at all. The Spirit comes to earth as a kind of trinity upload where the Father, Son, make their dwelling in us through the Holy Spirit. So, my point is that the Spirit brings God's presence. The first sub-point is that God's presence means, first, the Trinity within us. Secondly, God's presence means, God's presence makes God personal. Makes God personal. Now, when God is, am- is among us, or was among us, in Jesus Christ, He was present He was personal. He was experienced. In other words, the disciples ate with him. They drank with him. They walked with him. They prayed with him. They journeyed together with him. He was there with them. And when he says, it is to your advantage that I go away, it's not because he's replacing himself in the person of Jesus Christ with something less, something less of his presence. In other words, I'm leaving. It's going to be superior to you because you're going to get some benign force some vague engine in your soul that's just going to help you get things done. This, this, this power source that I'm sending your way, kind of like a divine administrative assistant that's just going to help you do stuff for God. That's not what he's saying at all. The Spirit's not just a force. The Spirit is a person. And he arrives in our life to deliver the personal presence of God himself. Statement of faith says the paraclete is present with and in believers. I brought a quote with me by Gordon Fee. He once said, quote, In dealing with the Spirit, we are dealing with none other than the personal presence of God himself. You see where this is going? See, God's presence means that God is not just infinite. God is personal. He's not just transcendent, he's imminent. God's not just omnipresent, meaning he's everywhere equally present at all times. God's not just omnipresent, but he is here. He is now. He is within us. He's giving us a sense that he is with us. And he is there in part to allow us to experience God personally. My friends, that's one of the reasons why Paul says to the Ephesians, he gives them this command, be filled with the Spirit of God. Be filled with the Spirit of God. Because God is more than a statement of faith. God is more than a creed or a liturgy that we just affirm and have mental assent to, but we don't experience at all. It doesn't come alive for us. And so God grants experience in Him. And He says, be filled with the Spirit of God. I mean, think about that command. Think about that for a second. The Spirit is already present within us at conversion. The Spirit is given at conversion. The Spirit results in conversion. But then we are called 
to ask him to fill us afresh. Why is that? Why is that? It's because God wants us to encounter him. God wants him to be more than just a body of data to us. More than just something that we affirm and then we basically walk out as if it has no, no significance or consequence for us. And so God grants experience and encounters with himself. It was never God's intention that Christianity merely be a creed, merely be a set of beliefs. And so the Holy Spirit becomes the experience point between us and God, or the experience point with God that we have. And and the Spirit comes, and we, we encounter Him. And so the New Testament says we can be led by the Spirit, we can walk with the Spirit, we can grieve the Spirit, we can be filled with the Spirit. All of these discernible experiences, and not simply something that we're affirming mentally, because the Spirit comes to connect the truth of Jesus to our experience, the truth of Jesus to being applied in our life. So we need the personal presence of God, and we must pursue the personal presence of God. For Paul, it's a command, be filled with the Spirit. We must pursue the personal presence of God. In fact, one of the goals I have for today is to convince us that there's a world of difference between having the Holy Spirit and pursuing the Holy Spirit. And I actually learned that from marriage because I learned early on, boy, there's a big difference between being married and pursuing my wife in marriage. Big difference between the two because I can share the same name with Kim. We can live in the same place. We can say that we agreed to the same vows years ago, but if I'm passive and not pursuing her, well, the Harvey house is going to be pretty cold. Because I'm, I'm married, oh, I'm affirming, I'm attesting to the reality of the marriage, but there's no pursuit going on. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you asked God to fill you afresh with the Holy Spirit. When was the last time you did that? Spurgeon once appealed to the Christians at Metropolitan Tabernacle. He said, quote, let us seek again to be baptized into the Holy Ghost. He knew that we were, he was baptized. Christians are baptized the first time at conversion. He says, let us seek again to be filled, to be baptized into the Holy Ghost. I want that for my life. And I hope that's one of the effects of affirming this article together as a local church. So, the first point that we're making is that the Spirit brings God's presence. God's presence means the Trinity within us. God's presence makes God personal. So Let's move on to our second major point, which is the Spirit brings God's power. The Spirit brings God's power. And that means several different things in both the article and the, and the Bible text. First, it means God's power to apply salvation. God's power to apply salvation. Let me read to you an excerpt from the article, Statement of Faith. Article 9 says, We believe that this salvation, attested in all Scripture and secured by Jesus Christ, is applied to his people by the Holy Spirit. 
In other words, the Holy Spirit is the means by which the accomplishments of Jesus Christ, His birth, His life, His, His, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, the accomplishments of Jesus Christ are stamped upon a person in such a way as they are brought from death to life. We come alive in the Spirit. So when I'm walking across Indiana University of Pennsylvania in the late 70s, and I'm thinking in my mind, there's got to be more to life than simply indulging myself and parting at night and and not moving and going anywhere. And I'm walking through the campus, and there is a campus preacher there, and he stops what he's preaching. He points at me, and he says, are you saved? And I just stick out my hand, and I go like this, because I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure if I was sober. How was I supposed to assess whether I was saved? And yet, I, I remember the things happening in my mind. I remember coming under conviction. I remember being irresistibly drawn by something. I remember beginning to see Jesus Christ as an undeniable truth that I couldn't simply affirm, but I had to move toward. I had to embrace. I had to give my life to. What was happening there? It was the work of the Spirit of God. It was the Spirit revealing my sin. It was the Spirit convicting my soul. It was the Spirit regenerating my heart through faith and repentance. The gift of faith that He gave, a repentance that He granted, it was all the work of the Spirit of God. Which is why the Gospel Coalition Statement of Faith says, quote, and by His powerful and mysterious work regenerates spiritually dead sinners, awakening them to repentance and faith, And in Him they are baptized into union with the Lord Jesus, such as that they are justified before God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. It was the Spirit that took the salvation found in Christ and Christ alone and applied it to me. It was the Spirit that took salvation that is found in Christ and Christ alone and applied it to you as well. Why do I say that? Well, let's, let's look at the next point. The Spirit brings God's power. It first means God's power to apply salvation. Secondly, it means God's power to judge the world. John 16, verse 8, when He comes, <clears throat> He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So, in this passage, there's, there's really something interesting happening here. You know, we see the paraclete, we see the helper, but he's not simply just a, a helper in the narrow sense. He's, he's really also like a, like a DA. He's like a district attorney, and he's putting the world on trial. And he's putting the world on trial in three areas, with respect to sin, with respect to righteousness, and with respect to judgment. I was reading Kostenberger's commentary on the book of John, and he said, quote, In John, it is not Jesus who is on trial, but the world. So Jesus, or the Spirit, convicts the world of sin, meaning that because of the work of the Spirit of God upon the soul, there is a, there's a spark of self-conscious recognition that we have fallen short of God's perfect law. 
there's a spark of conscious recognition of our own personal culpability, our own personal guilt for what has taken place upon the cross. In fact, in defining sin, John defines what he means when he says that. He says it's because people do not believe in Jesus. And so the Spirit comes and convicts them of sin because they don't believe in Jesus. In fact, this starts to happen all the way back in Acts. We we studied this together. Do you remember in Acts chapter 2? The Spirit of God is poured out. Peter stands up to preach. It's the day of Pentecost. His first sermon, and he preaches, and all these people get saved. But then there's this one little verse that says, and they were cut to the heart. The Spirit working in them, working the Word of God in them and bringing forth repentance because there's a conviction of sin. See, without the Spirit, the world can't understand sin. Without the Spirit, the world can't understand their problem because our hearts are naturally oriented to corrupting the truth of God. So the truth of God gets lost. We can't hear the voice. It gets, <clears throat> it gets lost in translation. You know, there, there, was once a, there was once a Mexican bandit. His name was Jorge Rodriguez. And uh, Jorge Rodriguez used to slip over the Texas line all the time, and he would rob these banks along the border, and, and then he'd go back into hiding over in Mexico. And, and the Texans were becoming so angry, they decided they were going to find the biggest, baddest Texas ranger to hunt this guy down and to bring him in. And so they found the guy, and he tracked down Jorge Rodriguez in this dilapidated saloon in a dusty Mexican town, and he snuck up behind him, and he put a gun in his ear, and he cocked the gun. He said, Jorge, this is it. I want you to tell me right now where all the money is, or I'm going to pull this trigger. And so this little guy sitting over in the corner, and he just says, ah, just a minute, amigo. He says, "Uh, Jorge does not speak English. I I am his translator. He says, you tell me, I tell him. He tells me, I tell you, that's, that's the way it has to work. And so, so the Texas Ranger says, tell him, I, give me the money, or I'm going to blow his brains out. So the translator gives that to Jorge in Spanish, and Jorge responds in Spanish, and he says, tell him not to shoot. Tell him to go to the wall on the east side of town and count down four bricks, pull it out. All of the money is there, just where I put it. And the translator turns to the Texas Ranger and says, Jorge is a very brave man. He said, go ahead and shoot him. He doesn't know where the money is. Something got lost in translation. The Spirit of God ensures that God's Word does not get lost in translation. The Spirit of God ensures that our sins don't get lost in translation. That we understand the charges that the Word of God brings to us and that we have the power to respond. In fact, it goes beyond sin. Did you notice that word that follows sin? There's little twist there. It says righteousness, that the Spirit of God addresses righteousness too. And you think, well, why would the, why would the Spirit judge the world because of righteousness? That Righteousness is a good thing. The issue there is that God knows that people don't see themselves as, as sinners. I mean, you walk across the street and go over to Circle K, and you start interviewing people about whether they think they're sinners. And there are some people that will say, yeah, I'm a sinner. But implied in that is not that my sin is so bad, it sets me apart from God and sends me to hell. It's just that I'm not perfect. And then you're going to meet other people that think they're just good enough, and it really doesn't matter that they've sinned. 
because they see themselves as essentially righteous. What the Spirit of God does is He comes and He converts our sense of righteousness to the reality of our sinfulness. Great example of this in Luke, where Jesus tells the parable of the, of the, of the prodigal kid, it's called. A guy has two sons. The younger son asks the father for his inheritance, even before he's dead. He asks him for his inheritance, and then he leaves, and he blows all of the father's money on parties and prostitutes. But eventually, he repents, and he returns where the father forgives him, and the father throws this incredible party for the son who's returned. And most people, when reading the parable, think the parable is about that kid. But then the parable goes on to say that there was an older brother who was out in the field, dutiful, had always been there, righteous guy. But he refused to go to the party once he heard that the younger brother had repented and the father was throwing a party for him. He refused to go in. In fact, the father had to come out and seek to persuade him to come in. And when his father came out, he was angry at his father. He accused his father of not being good. He accused his father of never even giving him anything, not even a calf to share with my friends. And as you read the story, it begins to become clear. Oh, wait, the elder brother thought he was morally superior to the younger brother. And to Jesus, that was really the more significant sin. The whole parable is designed to knock out the Pharisees. In other words, it reveals that the main target of the parable was not the wayward sinner, it was the self-righteous law keeper. Because the, the elder brother is there and he, he symbolizes all that is seemingly honorable and outwardly religious and superficially moral, just like the Pharisees. They're, they're approved of God because of their morality. But underneath their rule-keeping facade was this heart that was pulsing with self-justification, believing that it was enough simply to look good. Because the Pharisees didn't need a Savior because they upheld the law. They look good. They don't need a Savior because they're righteous. They don't need a Savior. They were their own Savior. And so God sends His Holy Spirit because He loves sinners to convict us even of our righteousness, our sense of being righteous apart from God, and to level the playing field before him, so that yes, indeed, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is the way the Gospel Coalition Statement of Faith says it. He convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and by his powerful and mysterious work, regenerates spiritually dead Christians, or spiritually dead sinners. So, we're talking now about how the Spirit brings the power of God. We're talking first about God's power to judge the world and judge it in terms of sin, judge it in terms of righteousness. And the other part, another thing this means, power, is it means God's power to change us. God's power to change us, to, to guide us into all truth. God's power to keep Jesus as, as the most important thing, to keep Jesus as the main thing. 
And so God gives us the Spirit to come in and to work towards that end, to exalt Jesus, to keep Him in our focus. Listen, the Spirit is not a squatter, you know, claiming us as His property, taking up residence illegally, and refusing to do any work at all. No, no. The Spirit comes as the helper, parakletos. That's why He's referred to the paraclete. Paraclete means advocate. Paraclete means the one who comes to aid, the one who helps. That's why He's called a helper. Verse 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. Part of how He helps us is by guiding us into all truth. The the Gospel Coalition Statement of Faith says, in this age, the Spirit indwells, guides, instructs, equips, revives, and empowers. In other words, the Spirit isn't come just kind of chilling out. The Spirit of God comes with an agenda. He wants Jesus to be big for us. And He comes with an agenda to make Jesus big. He comes with an agenda to see change in our life. In fact, the way you might summarize it is His agenda is to glorify Jesus by applying His Word. That's what the Spirit does. He glorifies Jesus by applying His Word in our heart. Jesus says it's better that he goes because he knows what's going to come is this personal tutor that we're all going to have within us that's going to ensure we hear the word, that we understand the word, and that we get the word. We get the lesson. I read an article on Friday about a guy named Nathaniel Hannon. He's this 33-year-old guy from Indiana, the state of Indiana. He's a professional tutor. And the kind of professional tutor he is, is that he's called upon by rich people, and he's flown anywhere in the world to guide kids by helping them study. And there are times where he's hired for special needs kids, and he sits with them, and he patiently instructs them, and guides them to overcome their disability so that they can understand what they study. Know what he costs? $1,250 an hour. $1,250 an hour. Here's the point that I'm trying to make. That's our helper. That's the Holy Spirit, except he's free. But that's what he does. He comes to us and he helps us overcome our sin, overcome those limitations that we have that are born in to our fallenness, that are endemic to our constitution, that don't allow us to see God. He helps us to overcome those things so that we can understand God, and He is within us. Jesus said He doesn't speak on His own authority, but He speaks what He hears from Jesus. He is within us, making it clear to us. I mean, how encouraging is that to us this morning? I mean, just think back on the hardest course that you've ever had to take in school. High school, college, doesn't matter. Was it it foreign language? Was it economics? I mean, for me, it was like anything math-related. I, I chose my whole college curriculum based upon the avoidance of math. Just imagine how it would affect you if somebody were to say to you, listen, good news, we've arranged for Nathaniel Hannon to be your personal tutor throughout your whole college. In fact, let, let's up that a little bit. Let's imagine somebody comes to you and says, we've arranged for the person that created Nathaniel Hannon, to be your personal 
tutor. Imagine what that would mean to us. Because we would know immediately, you know what? His tutoring, it's going to work. It's not about me being a great student. It's about him being a great tutor. I'm going to hear God's voice. I'm going to change. I'm going to pass this test that I'm in right now. Listen, Jesus knows how hard life can be. He knows how hard life can be in a fallen world. I mean, I can imagine Jesus saying, hey, if you think it's hard for you, you should try to do it sinless. It's even more difficult that way. He knows how hard life can be in a sinful, fallen world. He knows about our fears. He knows we have sad days. He knows we have seasons with the kids where everything just seems hopeless or we're so fatigued we don't even know if we have the courage and the strength to get up tomorrow morning. Or we get the bill, the unexpected bill, it comes in, it's like, where, where's this supposed to come from? Where's the money for this going to come from? And so he sent his helper. The helper, the comforter, the consoler, the one who would be the very presence of God within us to console us and encourage us and counsel us and love us and guide us. A power that arrives when we feel small that makes Jesus big. A power that arrives when our faith feels small and makes God's promises big. A power that arrives when sin feels small and makes sin big, big enough that it reminds us that we need a Savior, big enough that it reminds us that we want a Savior, big enough that it reminds us that we have a Savior. No wonder Jesus said, it is to your advantage that I go. Let's pray.